Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organisational and human sides of the major issues facing public value organisations. In the current COVID-19 crisis, our series focuses on the different ways this global pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organisations. And we discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia's response and recovery. More information on each episode is on our website, www.cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, I'm Tom Craven. Today is the 15th of July, 2020. Uh, it's now a little over three months since Australia began the significant shutdowns, physical distancing and remote working in order to contain the spread of COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, it's a little over a month and a half since stage three of those restrictions began to lift across the country. However, the past two weeks have significantly soured Australia's early outstanding success in curbing the spread of the virus. Victoria in particular has been experiencing significant and escalating new cases. More than 200 new cases have been reported for, the part, for four of the past five days, more than double the initial peak in March. Metropolitan Melbourne has now returned to stage three restrictions with an additional time frame of six weeks. School children who are due to return in Victoria this week will remain at home, uh, learning from home for some time. Borders to other states have been closed. And of course, an enormous testing and tracing effort is underway. More than 25,000 people are being tested each day compared to just 4,000 a month ago. Economic news is also beginning to show the scale of the social and economic cost of the virus and the measures to contain it. More than 800,000 people have lost their jobs since March. 40% of these were young people aged 15 to 25. And if the unemployment rate counted all those who had left the workforce, one in four young people would be considered out of work. Some of these wider social and economic impacts have also started to be recognised. Last week, Victoria's Commissioner for Children and Young People, Leanna Buchanan, raised many of the issues facing children at risk during the shutdown period. These included vulnerable children being unable to access support and education, and also a reduction in visits to homes from children from child protection workers, on top of the often poor living standards and support needs these children already have. Australia's public purpose sectors recognise the enormous task before them. They face multiple waves of challenge and disruption, beginning with responding to the ongoing threat of the virus and maintaining services while physical distance restrictions are in place, managing an enormous backlog as activities that had to be scaled down or delayed recommence, addressing rising complexity and complications of issues in the community, and of course, reducing and addressing the fallout of the social and economic damage the pandemic has caused. Today, we have with us Michael Hogan, Michael is the former Director General of the Queensland Department of Child Safety, Youth and Women, and before that, of the Department of Communities, Child Safety and Disability Services. Michael, Michael's career includes several decades of senior leadership roles in the Victorian and New South Wales Public Service, focused on, amongst other things, crime and violence prevention, family support, child safety, disability services and more. Michael is currently co-chairing the Governance Group for the Australian Research Alliance for Children and Youth Great to Eight Research Program and has also commenced Michael Hogan Consulting to bring his expertise and experience to public purpose endeavours across government, community, tertiary and corporate sectors. Michael, thanks for being a part of this conversation. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure to be with you. As we do, to start off, can I ask, where are you speaking from this afternoon? Um, what is your remote working setup and, and, and how, have you found, how have you found it so far? Look, I am very fortunate just before the world went into lockdown, I had just set myself up with a little office at home 
with a little two by four room um, with all my books and artifacts and photos and bits and pieces. So very fortunate to be able to work from home um, and to have a dedicated space. And then when my family joined me a few weeks later, when the world went into lockdown, um, we were all able to work from home. And fortunately, we've been safe and well. And at the moment, thankful that we're in Brisbane and not in inner Melbourne. We'll no doubt see whether we go through the same cycle and experiences uh, as folks in Melbourne and elsewhere around the world are experiencing. I think I can also hear some delightful chirping of birds in the background. Are you in a garden facing office? Is it a nice view? I am. I'm, and I you might also hear a few cars come past. I've got a nice little outlook onto our front garden with palms and, and lots of bird life. So it's a, it's a pretty nice working environment. You might be one of the many who uh, might be a bit difficult to drag back into an office environment as things progress. <laughs> Indeed. And not only I've not had to be in the thick of you know, a COVID crisis response, but as I said, my family, my kids who are studying have been working from home. And actually, we've been very fortunate. My, my partner, who has been working from home and loves it, not so sure she really wants to go back to the office either. Um, I mentioned in my introduction that we're starting to be able to recognise the social and economic fallout from the crisis and what we've had to do to contain it. I wonder if you could start by telling us a bit about how the crisis impacts vulnerable families and what it means for them. Yeah, thank you. Look, we have in Australia and around the world, unfortunately, regular experience of natural disasters and other crises. And we, we know full well that disasters especially the scale and intensity of the COVID situation impacts worst on the people who are already vulnerable. So clearly the COVID situation has exposed a whole lot more people than would normally we would regard as vulnerable to an experience of unemployment and precarity and stress and the risk of mental illness and so on. So there's a whole lot more people who've been exposed to vulnerability and precarity. But we also know that these crises exacerbate pre-existing vulnerabilities. You know, they amplify the, st the stress and the vulnerability, particularly if you're relying on, if you're fortunate to have even some employment, it's likely to be insecure and underemployed. And the devastation that's happened in the employment and labour market, particularly affecting young people and women, has a an immediate sort of kick-on effect in terms of the economic and the social and the psychological safety and security of those families. We also know that those folks who are hardest hit will also most likely take the longest to recover. And for young people, this crisis will have a long tail in their lives. In previous conversations, we've, we've talked about how this, you know, began as a health crisis and is now not only that but also yeah also as you mentioned a national disaster a global disaster having the characteristics of that and now of course a sort of financial and and economic crisis as well that that sort of that three in one combination is pretty devastating indeed and um you know we've been particularly fortunate in australia that the sort of scale of the crisis was responded to really strongly and positively by governments and by the community sector and by the corporate sector largely quickly and so our response has been strong and bold and largely effective relative to you know many parts of the world but we also know that these crises um, this one in particular 
will require a response and a recovery response that is as bold and strong and as ambitious as the immediate crisis response has been. And that we've got to pay particular attention that the way in which recovery measures are put in place actually don't make that risk and vulnerability even worse. Many commentators are pointing to the, you know, we've got some very important choices to make. And actually now is the time not for austerity, but for really strongly investing in the social fabric and social infrastructure in raising the rate, in addressing mental health needs, and in really investing in human capital development all the way from early years, all the way through as a way to mitigate the impacts of the crisis and make the most of the way in which we can recover. I want to focus just quickly on, I suppose, the pointy end of this conversation, child abuse and neglect and the role of child protection. I wonder if you have a view of the sort of scale of the challenge that's coming. I know it's hard to estimate these things. I've seen estimates as high as sort of a 30 to 50% increase in rates of family violence, which is one of the key drivers. You mentioned mental health and, and also unemployment and drivers of poverty. What's your sense of the scale of challenge at, at that pointy and most difficult end around, around a child abuse and neglect? Yeah. Look, it'll be a little while before the data emerges that gives us a really accurate picture of what has happened for already vulnerable children and families. But as you say, those, you know, the, the toxic circumstances around, particularly the combinations of, you know, unemployment, drug and alcohol misuse, violence, parental involvement in the criminal justice system, the extent that those things have been exacerbated and lots of important focus, particularly on, on violence and mental illness, that's really likely very quickly to exacerbate levels of risk for kids. On the other hand, police officer being interviewed the other day about changes in the availability of certain drugs that are largely imported. Again, they'll have a clearer picture over time, but particularly concern for Queensland, interesting at the moment with reopening the border, is actually reopening the flow of methamphetamine back into the state. And we know in Queensland and other jurisdictions that the surge in methamphetamine use over the last five years has been one of the major drivers of demand pushing kids into the tertiary system. And so I expect we'll see a bit of a mixed story about the factors that have been impacting on kids and what's pushing them into or keeping them out of out of the child protection system. You also mentioned that wider cohort of people that possibly we haven't thought of as vulnerable before, but are now higher rates of unemployment, other rates of mental health crisis, you know, driving a wider collection of families. Also kind of con- conscious that this is happening at a time when schools, other essential services, even community supports and, and, and those sorts of things are much more difficult or, or not available at the moment. I wonder if you've got a sense of the scale of that challenge as well, and particularly kind of where we need to place our attention in the short term to address that wider cohort of, of kids. Yeah, I know that you know, lots of folks who work in and around families were very quickly and especially concerned about the risk for kids who then might not be you know, visible to other services and systems. You know, schools for many kids are actually refuges, they're safe places. And schools and health services and arenas where people can have eyes and ears to children either formally or or informally and so they are 
really vital parts of the circles of safety and the networks of support that can assist families and keep kids safe and well. And so having kids locked down, having them not be potentially be able to be at school, that was a really serious and early concern for, for, for many people. Unfortunately, I think all of the education systems also were very quickly onto that risk and you know, they generally made exceptions for kids at risk to be able to stay at school or be connected at school. And I know schools and the other departments and the NGOs who work with families um, were really quick to sort of step into the space and try to really up the connection with those families so that those kids could stay in view and, to, and, and stay supported wherever possible with, with family. One of the really positive things you see in crises that people really do focus on high, on, on high risk and high consequence and work collaboratively and quickly and, and innovatively to actually respond to that. So it will be interesting to see as the sort of ref, you know, the reflections and the data emerge about what has happened and what the experiences are. But I expect we'll see a mixed story of some things that have not been so good, but some many examples of really terrific responses between and across systems and government agencies and non-government partners, the community-level initiatives that we've seen pop up at a neighbourhood and a a community level, people reaching out to each other, providing support, providing meals for people who are locked down. You know, I think there are some, there'll be positives and and some, some things that have been exposed. Feels like a complex picture to me as you as you describe it. Us certainly, our attention straight away went to those most at risk, and I mean we've we've been really impressed with the way a lot of public services have very quickly managed to maintain essential contact during this period and innovating quickly. Also, we're I think we're all enjoying that positive community element, aren't we? Our, our daily walk, our our extra level of excitement when we see a neighbour that we usually took for granted. I, I do wonder that within that complex picture, there are there will be gaps and, and people slipping through, those possibly without strong family or social networks, those who aren't already at a threshold where they're known to services. Yeah, I suspect there's a, a complex picture that's going to emerge about what, what disadvantage and vulnerability looks like over the next few years. In, indeed, and the profile of of vulnerability will, will change as a result of this. And particularly if we keep going through waves of peaks where we have you know, outbreaks and clusters, um, you can imagine for some communities, for some families, where there aren't those strong networks of support across extended family or within a community and connections to other services and so on, that risk will be exacerbated. But hopefully for other families, it'll be a more positive experience that this has actually strengthened some of those connections and circles of support and safety that wrap around um, them and and actually give them other options and pathways um, going forward. Let's talk a little bit about those services that that we've been mentioning in in tangentially. So both statutory child protection services, but also earlier intervention, child welfare services. How is the social distancing, the restrictions on remote working, those sorts of things, how have those been impacting child protection and, and what has it meant for those support services that many of these families rely on? Yeah, no, look, it's been, it's been a huge challenge for both the family support and the child protection services to respond to both the social distancing and hygiene you know, requirements of this situation. And as we know, 
fundamentally and vitally work in in this area is is relational. It's really grounded and driven in the interaction between families and kin and carers, the agencies that support them, and statutory child protection workers. That's based a lot on on home visits, on street work, on face-to-face service, on you know visits to services, and that's obviously been really difficult in the COVID situation. But the examples and stories I've heard of the way in which services have responded, both statutory and the secondary services, have been incredibly you know, innovative, just really embracing um, proactive outreach, um, checking in with families. I was talking to a specialist tertiary service this morning in the sort of infant and perinatal mental health area, and they were quickly turning backyards and verandas into therapeutic spaces to engage families. So, you know, obviously there's been a shift for many services to telehealth, telecare, to so connecting through digital means with, with families. And I think there's been a lot learnt from that pivot, good and, ba- and, and bad, and, you know, the, the challenge of actually reaching hard to reach, hard to engage or hard to sustain engagement with some families and kids that's taken extra effort. But on the other hand, for some families that actually works in, in terms of accessibility and the ease that comes with, for some with a digital platform, if they have access to the technology, then that's actually worked for, you know, worked for some. So there'll be, again, they'll be really important that the lessons of what's been done and observed and what's worked and what hasn't pulled together so that we can work out what we want to keep from what we've done differently in the last few months what we do or don't want to go back to in the way things were and what we might take forward as sort of service innovations that for some people might actually work better than old ways of providing a service. One of the things I've reflected on a few times is just how fortunate we are that this crisis is happening today, even compared to two, three, four years ago. Just a couple of things you mentioned around probably hinting at the prevalence of smartphones, the access to video conferencing or video calling technology. Even a couple of years ago, what we take for granted and what, what is getting us through today wouldn't have been available. I suspect those sort of mediums are a great opportunity that, that it actually works for a lot of vulnerable families. Yeah, so I think what we'll hear and learn is that, that that varies and that this will give us really important insights into the circumstances where it's good and effective tool and when it's not so workable or, or effective. You know, I think certainly what we've heard in our sector and many other sectors is that COVID has really brought on with great urgency a sort of a, a pivot to a more digital platforms and means and tools as long as we can bridge the digital divide for families so they've got decent access and plans and phones or laptops or whatever, then actually this could become a really significant part of the way in which we engage and support and service folks going forward. And, and this may well actually bring on an even more rapid sort of digitization of our workforce and service models across human services. So I think there's a lot more to work through in this space as, as we go forward, as we go through these waves and you know, work out the service models going forward. In the meantime, I think we talked in our report about the possible third wave of disruption that we're likely to experience as we go through this sort of experimental phase of trying to move our interventions into remote ways of working or a mixed model or whatever we can. That third wave we were describing was a likely rise in complexity and complications in people's circumstances because we haven't been able to intervene early. 
I know for, for every child welfare system in the world, intervening early is the impossibly important task. It's, it's the goal and, and something that's always proved really difficult, particularly when there are high rates of demand. I want to talk a little bit about are those services as well compromised by, by these efforts or how do you see the likely success of our early intervention efforts at the moment? Look, it's a really important issue and I think a very significant challenge for folks who work in and who are, you know, administering and leading these these service systems. You know, as we said at the beginning, there's more than enough evidence about the consequence of these sorts of crises exacerbating vulnerability and amplifying some of the risk for children. And indeed, the the UN and the OECD and UNICEF the European Commission, folks in the UK and North America and Australia have all been pointing to that. So that does suggest that we've got to have a long tail either of demand that's been pushed back and deferred as well as a wave of greater complexity to deal with. So that does mean we're going to have to make the case for governments about greater investment as well as make the case about smarter ways to enable people to get the right level of support and service at the right time and, and in the most effective way. We can continue the momentum that we've built over the last 10 years or so in Australia of growing our investment in a continuum of services and supports for families across the spectrum from universal and early intervention through to the tertiary end. What would be a shame is if we can't sustain building that strong service system getting the balance right of investment across that service system and getting the access right for families who need it so that they don't drift unnecessarily into the more complicated, more tertiary and more difficult circumstances and find it harder to recover and to get their lives back on track and to not have their kids removed if it gets to that point. You mentioned, you mentioned a little while ago just, just some examples of ways in which services have adapted really quickly to try and keep up these these critical services. Are there some good examples of that that you want to describe to us or, or even just more broadly reforms that you're seeing coming through that we want to make sure we continue into the new normal? So look, one thing that's really I've been so impressed by is the really proactive approach that many of the sort of key institutes and bodies have taken to really develop material and content that they could get out there directly for parents and for families or for professionals and the paraprofessionals who work across whether it's early years or mental health or drug and alcohol, family support, child protection, disability services. I've just seen examples, maybe because I've got more time to keep an eye on it now, but just seen lots of examples of really fantastic practice getting that material out. For example, the Parenting and Family Support Centre at the University of Queensland, in conjunction with Triple P, did that great series of, of podcasts and TV content on parenting in a crisis. The Parenting Research Centre has done fantastic work as well. Emerging Minds has done lots of really good work on getting it out into the sector, into the community. As I mentioned, the folks I was talking to this morning in the sort of infant and perinatal mental health space have been really proactive. They work with Children's Health Queensland to, to do a fantastic booklet for kids on... COVID on crises on viruses. So just it's been lots and lots of examples of a very proactive, quick, focused effort to get stuff out 
and you know make that accessible either directly to parents and families or to the services who work with them which i think has been fantastic all right just as a parent myself i can testify to that i think also just the quality that with some of these materials that have been no doubt pulled together in such a short period of time has been extraordinary the use of multimedia the use of the use of the advantages that online gives you um, to provide those those materials too has been extraordinary particularly given how quickly they've, they've needed to be um, produced ironically there is an upside to crises not that you wish them on anybody but on the world for that matter although we probably do need to get more used to it is that there is a sense of urgency and focus and agility and collaboration and creativity that we see time again time and time again in a crisis situation and while it might be hard to sustain that level of energy and effort in difficult circumstances there is something about the lesson of being able to do it really well in a crisis situation and yet somehow we need to work out how to actually do that well when we have a slow burn human crisis and a slow burn human disaster of you know inequity and exclusion and violence and mental illness and drug misuse and so on i'm hoping that's sort of one thing that will come out of this is okay how do how can we actually pick up some of the lessons that we've seen globally responding and dealing with COVID and its consequences and how can we actually then make that now part of the way we do business so we do deal with those slow burn intergenerational human disasters that um, our systems are dealing with great vision and also, how do we channel this extraordinary sort of community goodwill, a, a community that's willing to recognise that saving lives is far more important than many of our day-to-day -day challenges and the extent of support amongst the community for containing the virus. How do we channel okay. that level of goodwill into the other crises that we face that are maybe less front of mind? Absolutely. And the, you know, the positive consequence of people really, really seeing the vital importance and the bravery and courage of our health and care workforces in this circumstance. You know, the vital importance of all the workers who keep our, you know, our, our world and our communities and our economies running, the delivery folks, the, you know, the, the folks who put themselves in the line of you know, the virus to sustain communities and as best we can. The fact that people will probably come out of this valuing our health service and our care services more strongly. The fact that they actually probably also have more faith and confidence in public sector and public service and public purpose is also another really you know, great consequence of this. The fact that we value care and connection because when it's been under threat and those we've seen those great examples of neighborhood informal, you know, people reaching out and supporting each other, the value of caring and care and connectedness We've been reminded about how important that is to a good life. That's hopefully something also we can sustain as we go forward. I don't know, for you too, that part of that community element, which we haven't really talked about, is actually really vital for our broader topic here around child wellbeing and the wellbeing of families. That strengthening the connectedness of local place is a big part of what makes for communities, villages that raise, that raise kids well. I know that's also a passion area of yours and, and something also that is possibly an area of hope coming out of this. Yeah, so so too. And I've been really pleased to be part of a, a network of people and organisations who are pushing hard to ensure that there's a proper recognition of the value of community and 
that community is put front and centre in recovery planning and effort. You know, we've seen that come to the fore not that long ago with the bushfires that swept across so much of Australia. And we also know, again, globally, that the best recovery from crises happens when community is front and centre of involved in the planning and the decision-making and the delivery. You know, the importance of community leadership and community action are essential to good recovery, good psychosocial recovery, good community recovery. And so, yeah, the coalition that has come together, Alliance, really pushing to make sure that community is front and centre that there's a place dimension to recovery and planning and response so that we don't lose that momentum in the moment we've had where we've seen some, the importance of those of care and connection of local ways of, of, re- of recovering. We're really hopeful that that will become a critical part of the way we go forward. I think that's a good topic for us to go before we finish. So you mentioned Australia Together and an alliance that you and others are leading. I know I've had some involvement with that, but why don't you tell us particularly about your priorities for that movement, what are the opportunities and and possibly also the dangers that you're seeing as we approach a recovery phase from the pandemic and what is the Australia Together conversation really trying to promote? As I mentioned earlier, we've been really fortunate in Australia that we actually have had governments and other sectors, the unions, corporates, civil society, NGO sectors, really stepping up and working strongly together everyone's satisfaction or not everything necessarily have we got right but the leadership and the collaboration i guess symbolized by the national cabinet the bold strong collaborative response has been really important so far and we think we need to sustain and build that out for recovery not just the response we know that this is a profound and enduring economic health and social crisis and as i said before the you know, the consequences will have a long tail. This has been an intergenerational impact. It's been a huge impact on women. So there's a a gender lens to this. There's a cultural lens, intergenerational lens. And so we really wanted to work through how best can we contribute to shaping both the economic response, the health response, and the social response. So that's why we've been advocating strongly for a community lens for a place-based approach and how we can ensure that key areas for recovery housing jobs early years and community responses how can they be done strongly and well and in an integrated way so there are lots of areas where people are providing ideas and proposals about recovery, um, we wanted to link and amplify those efforts that are really bringing to the fore the opportunity to use both the pre-existing problems and crises we had in housing or early years or job insecurity and make sure we tackle those in ways that helped us build back better as a society and nationally in our states and territories and at a local level. So we've been keen to link and amplify those community voices and proposals that actually really look at how we can we do this well. How do we get a social dividend out of our economic responses and how do we get an economic dividend out of our, out of our social responses? So we, you know, we've developed a set of proposals and we had a fantastic 
community summit, a community recovery summit, and we have over 500 um, folks register for that, soon to be encouraging other people to lend their brand and their logo and their, and their voice to that set of proposals. And we're hoping to, and looking to engage with the National Cabinet and other decision makers um, at local, state and national levels over the next, next few weeks and months to make sure we try and get community built into the recovery. I know, I know you and others are energised not only by the, the need that we've talked about for most of this conversation, but also it sounds like a, a pretty unique opportunity, a level of faith and confidence in our public leaders. We've always been pretty, I think, trusting of our public authorities, but we've really seen their value over the last little while. And also, for the most part, a really, I've been really encouraged by the positivity of the Australian community towards a shared challenge and a shared opportunity. If you compare our attitudes towards lockdowns or restrictions to some of our friends overseas, there's been an almost universal goodwill for self-sacrifice in order to protect others, particularly recognising that this virus is particularly dangerous for the, for the olders, older people in our community the willingness of younger people to recognise the sacrifice we need to make for others. It's, those are really positive currents in our community that it would be a real shame to, to not capitalise on those for the long term. Indeed, and our, you know, our leaders were quick to recognise and to call out the need to say, you know, we, we are all in this together. Maybe it hasn't been necessarily the case for everybody. Some people missed out on some of the responses. But overall, we, we have seen, you know, again, generally the best in people's sense of what's important and what we need to do to look out for each other and get through this together. So we're hoping that we can influence our leaders across sectors and at, at all levels to sustain that sort of Team Australia moment, not just for the crisis response, but for the crisis recovery. And we think we can, as I said, build back better, not snap back to old ways that didn't necessarily work for, for lots of people. We think we can not only deal with the consequences of the crisis, but actually deal with some of the issues we had prior to the COVID crisis and address both of those as we move forward. Now, Australian governments have clearly put money on the table. The stimulus recovery spending levels are, I mean, they dwarf even what we did during the GFC a little while ago. What are the sort of two or three things that are most are the biggest priority for you in terms of your advocacy? What are what are some choices that you could see governments going either way on that uh, you're really keen to advocate for? Look, a lot of folks have have been doing a lot of work, of course, for many years around the need for a much stronger investment in social and affordable housing, and that's really come to the fore a response to the particular measures that the federal government announced for. Home, home building and home renovations. And so there's still absolutely unfinished business to make the case for government for a serious investment in, in affordable and social housing and to really leverage the resources of, of government and the community sector and superannuation firms to do much better um, in that space. And as a job creator, as much as a, a way to create safe and stable and sustainable places for families. So, so social and affordable housing is, is one. The other, other key area is in the early years space, some really important measure, quick measure the government took around the free childcare that's now been turned off. A huge reaction from all of the sectors concerned about early childhood development and early learning. And we're very hopeful and we're going to work with a whole lot of other coalitions and organisations to 
really try and keep up the pressure, but also help work through how can you design a more inclusive, more accessible, fairer and cheaper quality early learning system for Australia. And it's time we should have done it before. COVID has exposed the cost and the difficulty for families. We think we should come out of this recovery with a stronger and better national early years system. On the jobs front, we think there's a real vital need for local jobs plans, for local inclusive growth strategies that, again, really address some of the the consequences at a local level. Our communities have very different circumstances. We think we need local level effort to working with councils and chambers of commerce and regional development bodies to really bring together the best folks available at a local level to plan a way forward to grow strong and secure jobs and economies in diverse economies across Australia. So they're the three key areas that we're keen to see more effort, more attention and more investment from, um, from National Cabinet. I've been speaking today with Michael Hogan. Michael, thanks for a great conversation. Thank you very much, Tom.